Um, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount thus far, Jesus is completely upending how the disciples think about the good life. Jesus is completely changing how the disciples think of their place in the world. They're neither winners nor losers. They're salt and light. They preserve the world. They give beauty to the world. They give light to the world by sharing the good news of Jesus and his rule and reign in the kingdom of God. Jesus is changing everything, it seems. And the question as the sermon begins is, who is this Jesus? What is he all about? His hearers, the disciples at the top of the mountain, and anyone who may be listening below, who at the end of the sermon we find out are shocked because he's not teaching like the other teachers. Whoever's listening has to be trying to fit him into their theological framework. Just like you this morning, when you hear a preacher or teacher, you're running them through your theological filter of your experience, your understanding of the Bible, your understanding of doctrine, and you're trying to figure out basically, are we for him or against him? <laughs> do we like this guy or do we not like this guy? How do we think of Jesus in light of all we know to be true about the Word of God, the will of God, and the story of God thus far? In verses 17 through 20, somewhat of a thesis statement for the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers foundational questions of authority and theology. Essentially, our text, as Sam read a moment ago, says, don't get it twisted. I didn't come away, I didn't come to do away with the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. The law stands until all things have been accomplished. But don't think for one second that your ability to follow rules will get you in the kingdom of heaven. I'm about, Jesus may say, a deeper, richer, and better righteousness, one that is just different than the one you see among the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll argue this morning that Jesus presents himself to us as the fulfillment of the law, the author of the law, and righteousness apart from the law. Those are the three main points of the sermon. Jesus as fulfillment of the law, Jesus as author of the law, and Jesus as righteousness apart from the law. Now, why does this matter to us practically? And there's many ways. This morning is foundational to how we think about the whole Bible. How does it all fit together? Should you read the Old Testament? Why should I read the Old Testament? Should I take it seriously? How do I think about obeying its precepts and principles? How do I think of Jesus, his work, and his character? How do I think of righteousness in a life that pleases God? I pray that you find answers to these questions and many more as we see Jesus lifted up as the fulfillment of the law, the author of the law, and God's righteousness revealed apart from the law. And I pray that in light of these truths, you and I together will embrace a better righteousness. One that is real from the inside out. One that's not just about the number of rules we can obey, but about the quality of our hearts inside. The title of this morning's sermon is A Better Righteousness. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. This is a massive theological statement that affects how we deal with the entire Bible. 
Jesus does not consider his ministry as a deviation from God's dealing with Israel from the Old Testament. Rather, he understands his ministry as the apex, the climax of God's dealing with Israel. Jesus' attitude towards the Old Testament is not one of destruction. It's not one of discontinuity. It's one of organic continuity, and it's one of fulfillment. Some scholars argue that if you were to read Matthew's whole gospel and try to condense his theology into one word, what's Matthew getting at? He's getting at this idea of fulfillment. Jesus doesn't waltz into the story of the world haphazardly or irreverently to proclaim complete freedom from moral and ethical restraints. He's not walking things back. This is crucial. He's not walking things back. He's living things out. He's not walking things back. He's living things out. He pits abolition against fulfillment. I'm not here to tear down. I'm here to fulfill. Meaning Jesus does not say, forget everything you've ever heard. Only listen to me from this point forward. To continue that metaphor, he may say, remember everything you've ever heard? Let me show you how it points to me. Remember everything you've ever heard from Torah? Let me show you how I fulfill it all. Church Father Chrysostom explained this idea of Christ's fulfillment of the law as his sayings were no repeal of the former, but a drawing out and a filling up of them. A drawing out and a filling up of them. What does it mean that Jesus is fulfilling the law of the prophets what, and the prophets? What does it mean that he's drawing them out and filling them up? It means he's making sense of the whole Old Testament. He's revealing the heart of God. He is bringing forth that which the prophets said would come to pass. He is connecting the dots from Genesis through the Torah, through the wisdom literature, and through all the prophets. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud, and the New Testament is the gospel in flower. Jesus fulfills the law by obeying it perfectly. He fulfills all its ethical precepts. He understands it. He lives it out. He never contradicts it. Jesus fulfills the law by providing the substance to which the whole Old Testament points. Meaning Jesus is a better Adam. He's a better Moses. He's a better Abraham going back further. Jesus is born into the Jewish tradition and will live out perfectly the law God gave to the Israelites. He will obey every jot and tittle, every iota, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And he will show the whole world how humanity is supposed to live. Now, why does it matter this morning to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law? When we read our Old Testaments now, when you read Genesis through the end of the prophets, we interpret every phrase, every sentence, every idea, every point of doctrine through the lens of who Christ is and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. 
We join those two chaps in one of my favorite passages on the Bible, in, in, in the Bible, in Luke 24, right? There's this moment where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is walking with these two guys, and they're talking about, man, this whole Jesus thing has been out of control. This Passover was unlike every Passover before, and their eyes are blinded, so they don't know that Jesus is the one walking with them, and they're talking about all these things, and Jesus asks, what things? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then for the rest of their journey to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning everything that he has in view here, the whole Old Testament, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <laughs> That's the greatest experience. Like if I could, as a preacher, could be at any point in the Bible, that might be it, because Jesus is literally unpacking for hours all the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. When we read our Old Testament, when we read the law, when we read the prophets, we're reading them through the lens of who Jesus is as the fulfillment of them. I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Verses 18 and 19. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, a yod, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law remains true and good. Its precepts are pure and right. Scriptures teach that the word of God stands until all things are fulfilled, until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a yod, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if the law reflects the heart of God, then that's the heart of Christ. The will of the Father and the will of the Son are not at odds in orthodox and right Christianity. If the law is from the heart of the Father, then it's from the heart of the Son. The law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament remains true. It remains right. It remains good. It remains helpful. But this is the key. Its role to us is not the same this morning as it would have been to a Jew before the coming of Christ. We understand and apply the Old Testament through the authoritative teaching and example of Jesus, the author of the law. We understand and apply the whole Old Testament through the authoritative teaching and example of Jesus, the author of the law. Now, we'll see in a moment, especially next week, but we'll get a glimpse of it this morning as Sam read. Jesus' demands may actually surpass the demands in the Torah, but they never contradict the commands of the Torah. Jesus' commands may actually surpass the commands of the Torah, but they never contradict the commands of the Torah. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I'm telling you, if you hate your brother, then that's the sin in your heart. So Jesus isn't just saying, hey, listen, if we could all not kill, that'd be wonderful. Like, let's just have a non-killing thing. Jesus is saying, no, no, I don't want you just to not kill. I want you to actually not hate. And not only not hate, but I want you to actually love your brother. Jesus authors the law. Jesus fulfills the law. And Jesus interprets the law. Jesus authors the law. Jesus fulfills the law. And Jesus then interprets the law. The author has the authority to tell us what this text means. 
Therefore, here's the therefore. Whoever relaxes the least commandment will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the rabbis had worked out a complex system of, of weightier laws and less weighty laws. And in, in itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing, a bad thing, right? Like a light command from Torah might be, um, you know, tithing, so giving a tenth of your uh, harvest. So you have a harvest of whatever crop, and then you take a tenth of it to um, the temple or, or wherever, and that's your sacrifice to God. That might be a lighter commandment. And then a weighty commandment would be like, don't kill anybody. Or the weightiest commandment even is, is you know, have no gods before me. And there was almost like competition. I mean, that's not the best word, but we'll just have to live with it. There's almost competition between rabbis. Like, who's, what do you think the weightiest commandments are? Like, what do you think the, the lighter commandments are? And, and different rabbis would have a different way of discerning what's weighty and what's uh, lighter. Jesus is saying if you relax even the lightest of the light commands that flow from the law and teach others to do the same thing, you're missing the point. You'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them, whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't equate the light and weighty commands to make yourself feel better, but also don't slip up, right? Don't lower the standards that I have set. The lowest and the least will be those who don't take the Word of God seriously. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those who take the Word of God seriously. The greatest are those who are the most faithful to the Word. Success, church, hear me, hear me this morning. Success in life is all about faithfulness to God. Success isn't about a paycheck. It's not about how many people think you're awesome or how many people think you're great. It's not about health. It's not about your image. It's not about any of that. Success is about faithfulness to God. The least in the kingdom of heaven are those the ones who take the word of God least seriously. The great in the kingdom of heaven are those who take the word of God most seriously. Don't relax the least commandments. Don't make yourself feel better because you obey the great ones but not the least ones. Don't pick and choose what you want to obey. Jesus says the moral law of the Old Testament stands and you should obey the revealed will of God. Know the word. Obey the word. Teach the word. Do it all in light of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he calls us to do. Let the author of the word teach us the meaning of the word that we may live in obedience to the word. Let the author of the word teach us the meaning of the word that we may live in obedience to the word. Jesus fulfills the law and Jesus is the author of the law who interprets the law for us that we may obey and be found faithful. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who are we talking about here? When we think of the scribes, we think of professional students. Think in our day as religious PhD students. They're teachers of the law. They're experts in its application. They are where you go to figure out what the law means and how to live. 
The Pharisees are this reform movement within Judaism that focused on the meticulous practice of the law. So uh, many Pharisees would be scribes, and and the rest of the Pharisees would be informed by uh, very conservative uh, scribes. So Jesus is saying, unless your adherence to the law is greater than the experts on the law, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So to his ragtag group of disciples sitting before him to hear, unless you like know way more about religion than those guys down there and can apply it with more pinpoint accuracy and precision than they do, then you're really out of luck, man. You're, you're really in trouble. But as you read the Gospels, you begin to find that Jesus finds no company with the Pharisees. You begin to find that the Pharisees oppose Jesus. Because Jesus is actually teaching a, a different kind of righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees had in view. The law experts were, by and large, missing the point completely. The righteousness that Jesus is teaching is different than the righteousness the Pharisees were teaching. And that conflict lasted throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry, and in many ways that conflict continues today. The righteousness of the world is different than the righteousness of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, worldly righteous folk, are saying, score higher. They may deduce some 240 commands in the Torah, and they may say something like, okay, 240 commands there. If you can get to a 225, we'll let you pass. Right, and so basically you have to figure out, you know, I'm going to try to obey all these commands. I've got this spreadsheet in front of me, and there's, you know, 25 of these commands are going to be tough, but I can follow the rest. And there's some arbitrary threshold whereby we're more righteous than not righteous, right? We're doing pretty good because we're obeying a lot of these commands. In essence, the Pharisees are saying, obey more, score higher, do better. And essentially Jesus is wondering where they even got the rubric, Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in how good you can show others you are. I'm interested in how pure you really are. The Pharisees are content with a rigid, external, formal obedience. And Jesus is teaching that if you really understood the law, you would know that that obedience is always meant to flow from a heart that loves God and loves others. In the eyes of the Pharisees, what Jesus is teaching is more radical. That God is not interested in mere formal obedience. He's interested in a purity of heart, soul, and mind. Perhaps the Pharisees are over here yelling for more and more and more obedience while Jesus is calling us to deeper, deeper, and deeper obedience. Because Jesus understands the entirety of the Old Testament in a way that these scribes and Pharisees do not. Jesus understands Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts in those days, God promised. Jesus understands that he already told Ezekiel how he was going to do this. I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes. Jesus understands that in the will of God, at just the right time, God will put his law within our hearts by coming to live within our hearts himself. 
This is the essence of the new covenant. Jesus is not coming to give a new law. He's coming to fulfill the law in accordance with the law and live in our hearts as God himself. Here is the beauty of the gospel. This is all done apart from the law. Jesus is righteousness made available to the world apart from keeping the rules. The New Testament is ripe with teaching on this. We'll settle for Romans chapter 3. Settle for Romans chapter 3. It's like saying, I'll settle for a filet mignon. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Paul's saying the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's come to earth. It's been made visible. It's been made so all can see. Apart from the law and the prophets. But the law and the prophets, what do they do? They bear witness to it. They point to it. The righteousness of God is coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Oh, this is what some of the Pharisees would not be too happy with. Because they're losing their place as the privileged and special few. Because Jesus is coming, not just for the Jews, but coming in the line of the Jews to be a blessing to all nations. Just like God promised Abraham. For there is no distinction, Paul says. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified as a gift by His grace. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's unpack this for a moment. Paul is making the argument that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. All miss the mark. All do the wrong thing. All are fundamentally unable to demonstrate the kind of righteousness that Jesus is teaching of in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can fully please God. No one can meet the standard of righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. But in Christ and through Christ, God has made a way for us to receive righteousness without scoring high enough on the Pharisaical exam. We are counted righteous not because of our obedience score, but we're counted righteous by trusting Jesus in our place. We are counted righteous, don't miss this, by trusting Jesus in our place. We then become righteous, we become who we are, we become changed from the inside out as the Spirit of God transforms us from the inside out. The question this morning is, who will enter the kingdom of heaven by obeying the law? Jesus. And then everyone else he's bringing with him. Nate, if you want to come on up as we wind to a close. In the Sermon on the Mount, this thesis statement, Jesus is sort of taking a step back, and he's teaching all his hearers a little bit about who he is, about how he sees himself in relation to the Jewish tradition. I didn't come to deviate from all that you've heard. I came to fulfill all you've heard. I came to be the righteousness of God 
that all who believe in me and who believe on me and who put their trust in me and who put their faith in me, who turn from their way of doing things and trust in me, all of them will be counted righteous by me, Jesus would say. Church, this morning Jesus can transform you from the inside out. When you trust in him, when you place your faith in him, when you repent of your sin, when you turn from your sin, by grace through faith you are saved, as we love to say. There's a rebirth where his spirit takes up residence in our hearts. His righteousness is credited to our account. And then as we live with his spirit day in and day out, as we obey his word, we are changed. As we'll see in the weeks to come, he makes us people who are just fundamentally different. He doesn't make us religious people who just avoid bad things and try to do good things. He makes us people who avoid bad things and try to do good things because we have new hearts. We don't just want to not kill people. We want to love people. He leads us to love his law, to love his word, to love holiness and purity, to rest in him, to find our self-worth in him, our meaning in him, our purpose in him, our reason for living in him. He leads us to love his law and he leads us to keep his commands. My question for you, are you trying to score more points or are you surrendering your life to Jesus? Do you have an informal rubric whereby you check off the things you're doing and feel pretty good about them and try not to look at the things that you're not doing so well and hoping that when you die or when Christ returns or whatever happens, the good outweighs the bad and you'll just live with the result? If that's you this morning, I hear the word of the Lord. Unless you're more righteous than anybody ever, you got no shot at entering the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus will later say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. And then nobody, when they're with the Father, when they have the Spirit, nobody lives the sort of life we see on the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus, without the Spirit of God inside of us. The sort of life that we're reading about in the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful picture of not just who God calls a few spiritual elites to be, but who God calls all of his people to be. And he brings that to pass, not by just obeying like everyone else. He brings that to pass by grace through faith and by his Spirit taking up residence in us and changing us and transforming us. The sort of life we see in these verses that we saw last week, being salt of the earth, being a light on a hill for all to see, that sort of life is not just for a few, it's for you. My question this morning as we wind to a close, are you interested in looking real or are you interested in being real? Turn to Jesus this morning. Receive a better righteousness and live 
in that better righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, help us um, do three things, Lord. Help us know your word. Help us love your word. And help us obey your word. Lord, the path to greatness in the kingdom of God flows straight through obedience and servanthood. Father, we know our righteousness on our own is not, not all that and that you have come to be our righteousness. You have come to provide a way into the kingdom of heaven where there was no way. You have come to show us what your word means. We thought it was all about keeping rules and you showed us it's not just about keeping rules. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor and you keep those rules. You live a certain way as an act of worship to you, God. Lord, help us stop trying to score more points in a feeble attempt at self-justification. Help us grow in our trust in you. Holy Spirit, take the sword of the word this morning and cut at roots of sin in our heart that we may become in this life who you've already made us in the life to come. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.